I haven't seen other projects have so many different perspectives. And when we do this together, meaningfully, with trust, we literally fill in goals. Making that effort to bring in project partners from the very beginning and have this shared participation throughout the whole process of the grant is really the only way to do this work meaningfully. We all are connected and we're helping each other out. Welcome to Coastal Connections Stories from the Atlantic. I'm your host, Dr. Sandra Eager, and in this volume, we continue to share perspectives and focus on stories of resilience and innovation in Atlantic Canada. Coastal Connections is a production of Coastal Roots Radio, produced in partnership with the University of Guelph and Memorial University of Newfoundland, Grenfell Campus. Welcome to the second part of Eduwaptimumk, A Conversation. Last episode, we learned from the perspective and personal journeys of Brady and Ivan. Today, we will continue to explore and learn about Eduoptimumk in practice in a conversation with Eveline van der Kloot from Ocean Tracking Network and a number of guests from the collaborative Abonomoltultig project. Abonomoltultig has community, academic, government, and First Nations partners all working to gather data and information that can contribute towards informing protection measures for culturally important species. We've put together this episode a bit differently, and we've included a number of clips from a previously recorded webinar to feature the various voices and partners to tell the story of this important project. A big thank you to Darren Porter, Alana Silliboy, Shelley Denny, and Skylar Jador for allowing us to experiment with this hybrid podcast style. Before we introduce our guests, I'd like to acknowledge that I'm recording this episode from Mi'kma'ki, the ancestral and territorial home of the Mi'kmaq. Mi'kmaq territory consists of all Nova Scotia and Prince Edward Island, New Brunswick, north of the St. John River, the Gaspé of Quebec, part of the state of Maine, and part of Newfoundland. In the show notes, you can find resources to help identify the original peoples and stewards of the lands on which we live, work, and play. I invite you to help reconcile for the mistakes and atrocities of our collective past and to help rebuild trust and relations by learning and engaging with the peoples of your region. In this final episode, I am so proud to once again provide a venue to learn from diverse knowledges, experiences, and stories throughout the Atlantic region that have been the inspiration for this volume. Let's meet our co-host my name is Eveline Vanderkloot. I'm the Senior Operations Manager with the Ocean Tracking Network and one of the partners on Abaganamatoltig. I've been with the project since it was funded, which was, happened in October of 2018, and been able to see the project through the funded phase of its journey anyway. And I'm really happy to be here today and to be sharing some of the lessons and perspectives and things that you know I've picked up along the way um, through this journey with all of our collaborators. This research partnership is co-created through the vision and support of Unamaki Institute of Natural Resources, Mi'kmaq Conservation Group, Marine Institute of Natural and Academic Science, Ocean Tracking Network, Acadia University, Dalhousie University, and Fisheries and Oceans Canada. Together, 
This partnership relies on the strengths of different knowledge systems in order to enhance the co-management of our shared marine spaces. So Abagana Metultig is a four-year collaboration. It's funded by the Natural Sciences and Engineering Research Council of Canada, so known as NSERC. Uh, so we're founded through a program called the Strategic Partnership Grant. And what that funding has enabled us to do is really come together as this interdisciplinary, intersectoral group of partners to study a commercially and culturally valued aquatic species in Mi'kma'ki. This project is an example of how two-eyed seeing can translate from theory to practice. Dr. Shelley Denny, a senior advisor at the Unamagi Institute of Natural Resources, reviews the Mi'kmaq guiding principle of Eduwapdamunk. Two-eyed seeing is coined by Elder Albert Marshall and he refers to learning to see from one eye with the strengths of Indigenous knowledges and ways of knowing. And from the other eye, the strengths of Western knowledge and ways of knowing, and using both these eyes together for the benefit of all. And two-eyed seeing isn't simply the inclusion of one knowledge system within another. It's the creation of new knowledge together that uses the strengths of each knowledge system. Rather than thinking of knowledge as the what, we prefer to think of knowledge as the verb. As a knowledge system, the what of knowledge is influenced by how we know. And this is largely influenced by our values that are derived from our beliefs. Two-eyed seeing requires space to co-learn and co-develop knowledge. It goes beyond inclusion to equality and partnership, where respectful dialogue can take place. It builds on the desire to leave one's comfort zone with the expectation to explore another way of interpreting the world around you. With that in mind, let's hear more about the project. So we're studying three species in the Bredor Lake and the Minas Basin. Um, so in the Bredor Lake, we're studying eel and lobster, and in the Minas Basin, we're studying eel and tomcod. And so those species were decided upon as a group based on what our Mi'kmaq and our local partners had been hearing from community members about what was important to them to learn more about. So our approach is looking at like, what do we know? What do we not know? What do we need to know? And kind of working through that with community-informed questions for each of those species. Working with and for communities has been a long-standing theme throughout this volume. Alana Silliboy is one of the community liaisons for the project and works with Mi'kmaq Conservation Group. She shares her initial thoughts on the project. I haven't seen other projects have so many different perspectives. Uh, and come together for one main objective, and that's for information and, and data on culturally significant fish. There's so many of us, even we usually work in silos or, you know, you apply for this funding and that funding, but we've collectively came together for the benefit of these species. And I think that's why we have a commonality and we're all individuals with different perspectives. So bringing those all in for one goal, I think that's, that's what this project is about. The identification of a common goal and achieving that goal collaboratively can be hard, but usually has the best outcomes. I think one of the biggest things that's helped us build these relationships is not being afraid of conflict and not being afraid of when our different worldviews and our different knowledge systems collide. And, you know, it's something that we have talked about in our very first in-person meeting was this idea that collisions are going to happen 
And that can be a really beautiful thing. And that can be a really wonderful thing for moving forward together. And so our process has been to make space for those conversations and to talk through them as a group and then find our way uh, to a resolution together. You might remember Darren Porter from episode one. He's an active community member and fisher in the Minus Basin. Darren highlights his personal reflection on collaborative projects. I think the first thing is to understand each other's goals. Like, what is your goal? What is the Mi'kmaq's Ma's goal with the project? What is um, a local fisherman's goal? What is the academic's goal? Usually our goals aren't the same. As I said before, a lot of academics, now students do the work, students the product, the papers the product. Um, with us, we want productivity, prosperity, or we want to preserve it for future generations. If, when you do it, and you understand each other's goals, and you do what Lana said, we start from the beginning, we hash that stuff out, it eliminates conflict, and it really does. In the end, when we, we do this stuff together, like for myself, I'll pick the fishing gear for my area. I'll pick the seasonal timing. So what we call, we're not picking blueberries in December, where there is no blueberries in December. Like a lot of studies we see, um, people are fishing at improper times, and they come up with zeros. And then at the end, it seems that we all pop out, um, honestly, on the same page which doesn't happen very often. It's a very good tool for governments, in my opinion, to embrace this kind of stuff because everybody's agreements eliminate a lot of the a lot of the stress. We fill in the holes of each other's weaknesses. We always talk about strengths, but we also have weaknesses. And when we do this together meaningfully with trust, we literally fill in the holes. Picking blueberries in December. This is my favorite Darrenism a short, witty statement that can initially elicit confusion, but perfectly demonstrates the shortcomings and limitations of working in silos. Working with partners who have different goals and skills is a positive thing, as different perspectives and strengths are leveraged to enhance the overall capacity and accuracy of the group or project. For instance, the selection of species for the research was driven by those who are a part of the communities within which the research was taking place. Being able to pick the species from the beginning, those culturally significant species, especially to the two different regions, like what was important and wanting to be more recognized and find out more information on in our area was the uh, tomcod. And in Skylar and Shelley's area, you know, they picked eel and lobster. So being able to pick those culturally significant species from the beginning and not being told what to do or what to pick or what needed to be researched. A Bonamultul take is a real example of how early communication with communities and allowing their questions to guide the research helps build trust as well as a meaningful research project. So as a community liaison, uh, we make sure that we're providing uh, Mi'kmaq knowledge in many ways and aspects during this project. Some examples of this is just showing respect to sensitive information and knowledge, like teaching our team how traditional knowledge and the knowledge that comes from the Mi'kmaq perspective needs to be respected and equaled. Uh, We do our monthly check-ins. We have a knowledge exchange. We do a mentorship uh, with the students involved in this project. It's really great because it's a place where we can kind of just relax and have conversations, but learn at the same time. We incorporate language, Mi'kmaq history and culture, uh, Mi'kmaq knowledge on species, uh, and local Mi'kmaq knowledge. Darren explains that in his experience, 
Conflict in collaborative projects often comes from preconceived questions and assumptions that are brought into communities about how a project should go. Often, these aren't relevant or in line with the goals of the people on the ground. There's usually always conflict at the beginning of these. You, you see it, most of it comes from the, the want for control, I believe. Um, regulators and or academics are used to having that control. When you get into these partnerships, it's easier to not control and it's easier just to accept. We accept the academic system's recording method pretty much already, both Mi'kmaq and fishermen, and basically focus on that, that we're going to still record in the academic way because it's accepted through law and everything else. But the control is unneeded from my eyes. Um, we don't have a legislated reason for anybody to deal with us, and that's usually a problem. We find that we get left out. You know, we're not trendy. We don't have a legislative framework for anybody to pay attention to our to our LK or local knowledge. Traditional knowledge wasn't in the Fisheries Act so much, and it wasn't necessary. So I think for us fishermen, the conflict comes where people don't have to deal with us legally, and it usually flows into these projects. This one, um, perhaps a little bit in the beginning, but no longer. So what is this project doing differently to make sure all knowledge systems are included and valued and that the partners at the table treat each other with humility and respect? The thing that sets this project apart from some of the other projects that uh, certainly that I've been part of is this kind of grounding idea that partnerships begin at the table. And so often with research, academics sit in a room, write a proposal, and then even ones that are bringing in the community, the community is brought in at the research phase, not at the drafting phase. With the Bakken Matildik and, and the grants that we're going after now, it's been so important that all partners are included from the inception of the project. And that idea that those different ways of knowing and sort of seeing from both eyes is part of sort of every phase in the project's journey is so critical to having a strong and resilient partnership that's doing meaningful research. Darren continues to describe the benefits of the project's structure and the value of early and ongoing communication between partners. What's unique about it is the structure of it's much more defined. So our first projects were simple. They were just informal collaborations. And then they went to structured partnerships. But this one is different. This one has been put together extremely well from the very beginning. Everybody's inputs in there. We go through the hard discussions. We can talk as we should. We're not too worried about stepping on each other's toes. Mutual respect. Um, and the structure of it, there's so many moving parts. You have different committees in constant communication. It's not like, okay, we're going to meet in six months. We're literally somebody's meeting on a constant basis. And I think that communication respect has taken us to a place where we are. Communication doesn't stop after designing the research questions, but needs to continue throughout the project so that the voices and perspectives of all partners are included. Evelyn tells me that so many other lessons have been learned with regards to project organization and structure. I feel like we're still, we're still learning. I think we're on the right track but we, we have a long way to go. And I think part of the journey is recognizing that it is a journey and that we're all learning together. 
Um, and it, I mean, that comes down to even the project name, uh, which means in, in Mi'kmaq, we help each other. You know, we've had conflicts rise up where a research decision has been made that didn't actually in, incorporate Mi'kmaq values and was very focused on kind of that Western scientific approach without thinking about the, the species as something that's culturally and spiritually very important to the Mi'kmaq and thinking about it instead as just a, a specimen for science. And so we've had those situations crop up and then it's too late to undo it. So the, the discussion isn't how do we reverse this, but rather what did we learn from this and how do we go forward to make it right? Respecting each other, our diverse knowledge systems, and values is critical. Alana provides a specific example of what this respect can look like. In this case, the adoption of new methods so that no part of the animal is wasted and that benefits for local communities are secured. At one point in the beginning of our project, there was samples taken from eels and we weren't sure what the rest of the eels went. Uh, So I made sure that I noted that the Mi'kmaq way of life is not killing animals, not to consume. So when I heard that the researchers were getting the eels and taking the stomach content and and destroying the rest of the eel, it it hurt me as as a Mi'kmaq person because I don't believe in taking a life that I'm not going to use or eat. And, you know, I voiced my opinions and they were heard and they were listened to. And, you know, now they have an understanding of why we do that uh, as Mi'kmaq people. And next time they're going to work harder to make sure that we're aware of what they're doing so that we can take the meat and the skins of the eels or whatever animal that we're researching on and, and using those to give to community members for consumption. The partners reflect on other key findings and messages from the first phase of the project. One of the biggest gifts almost to this project is that uh, UINR has a a set of partnership tenants. And so if you are interested in partnering with us, here are some foundational tenants that we need to follow. That's a resource that's been developed specifically by that organization, but I think that there's a lot of value in any researcher, whether they're here or elsewhere, who's interested in partnering with Indigenous groups to review that kind of thing and get a sense of what their role is and how to collaborate effectively. I think more broadly, it comes down to asking questions and then being prepared to listen and then take action on what what you're being told. So you kind of need to check a bias at the door and go in without, you know, without, without your plan and then use the information that's being given to you to then formulate that plan. And, and in that respect, I would say for, for anyone working to partner with, whether, whether it's an Indigenous group or local group or both, um, really taking to heart that idea of partnerships beginning at the table and you want to engage early and engage often. And so bring these groups in from the beginning, bring them in from the grant writing stage, let them have a role in shaping the research questions and even the budget needs before the grant is decided. So if it weren't for our partners, we wouldn't know to make room in the budget for a community liaison. Like it's not something that we necessarily would have thought of on our own. And making that effort to bring in project partners from the very beginning and 
have this shared participation throughout the whole process of the grant is really the only way to do this work meaningfully. A link to these tenants can be found in the show notes and are a good place to start. Communities often have their own ideas and guidance for projects to ensure that their values and interests are at the center of the work. So it's always best to reach out to local groups in your area to see if they've developed something similar that is related to your context. Darren shares that building relationships with researchers hasn't always been smooth. It can be difficult to let go of our own ideas of how things should go based on our life experience, training, and education. My journey with the academic started in conflict, pretty much, um, as a fishery spokesman and a fish, commercial fisherman. We disagreed with the papers that we were reading in many ways, from a fundamental point of view, from the very beginning of the paper, um, the capture techniques, the size and nets used, um, the reality, what's actually there compared to what they were saying was there. And then the interaction, it took years of interaction to break through that system and gain mutual respect. And now that we finally end up working together. It's all about trust, respect, and understanding that your system of knowledge is not the only system of knowledge and to respect others and actually try to learn others. Don't just try to command people to come to your system. Um, it's just simply education is never over and, and we can all learn more. We, we fill in the holes of each other's weaknesses. We always talk about strengths, but we also have weaknesses. And when we do this together meaningfully with trust, we literally fill in the holes. I love that honest and transparent clip from Darren. It really resonates with me. Relationships can be complicated. So as a researcher, we're ultimately trying to uncover nuances, details, and patterns in order to inform appropriate and effective future actions, and often policies with regards to a certain phenomena or context. So how can we ensure the way that we're approaching our relationships and our work is aligned with the key elements of two-eyed seeing? Is there a roadmap or toolkit to keep us grounded and on track so that the outcomes of our work are meaningful to not only us, but the communities we work with and even the public at large? I think that reaching out to the, the most local community or um, organization like UINR or MCG, um, just to kind of say, hey, like we're in this area, we're doing the project. Um, is there any way that you can help or give advice? I think reaching out uh, is your first step. Um, and being that's the most respectful thing you can do is reach out and saying, hey, we're in your territory and we're wanting to do these things. Can you help us out? The transfer of knowledge that has occurred is an extremely important outcome. And the most effective means of collaborating will always vary from context to context and from project to project. But sometimes, effort may not be equivalent from each eye or knowledge system, and often ends up being different in practice than on paper. The idea of two-way seeing um, is not the same as what's actually happening in many cases. I see a lot of Indigenous people going towards the academic system, but I don't see a lot of academics going towards the Indigenous knowledge system and or the local knowledge system. You put an education of a normal academic, average academic would be, I don't know, five to, to nine years. And, you know, if you look at how much time they spent with local freshmen or how much time they spent with Indigenous people, it would be four to five days. Yet, we have Indigenous peoples going into academic on an increasing level, which is excellent, but I think that we need to keep it a two-way street so we don't override the value of the traditional indigenous knowledge and or local. 
To cap off all of these great stories and experiences, here are some of the main takeaways from each of the partners, including Skylar, a community liaison and field technician with the project. Honestly, the core findings from phase one are, are so much focused on the partnership model itself. And I think those are the real like, tangible takeaways. How do we work together? What are some of the kind of key components that need to be there in order for this kind of a collaboration to be successful? Not that the, the research results are unimportant, but I think the bigger impact and the bigger kind of opportunity that this project has provided is kind of a, a roadmap for how this kind of work can be done. What I always feel like is we speak different languages, even though we're speaking English or French or whatever we speak or Mi'kmaq. I don't mean it that way. I mean, we literally think differently, speak differently, and we don't always understand each other. This project has greatly helped many people understand each other just just to speak to each other like Shelly when we first started this was teaching people how to say Mi'kmaq, Mi'kmaqi, um, just just simple things like things you do say and you don't say. I mean most people are tired to approach somebody from a different system you know you have to learn how to actually speak to them first you know what I mean like how do you respectfully talk to a Mi'kmaq? I like how the the research is um, based on Mi'kmaq roots. Uh, we have people from all over listening to how the roots are research design. And everybody sees that we are really helping each other. And, um, another thing that we really like every month, we have steering committee meetings. Uh, there's one steering committee uh, that all of us are on. And we're telling each other ideas and um, how to do certain things. And we give an update on our parts and on the project and also we have another committee with the students where we all pretty much the same thing we sit down and give updates and all that so everything is done monthly and um, the way i see it is um there's a huge support system with the project that nobody is like falling behind nobody's picking each other up or dusting each other off or something like that and um that's, that's probably one of the best things about the project is that we all are connected and we're helping each other out. Sometimes I feel academics are bound by um, deliverables and deadlines and stuff like that and you know just understanding that these relationships and building those relationships even initial contact takes time and sometimes those academic things don't allow that and maybe it's you know working and volunteering within the communities or organizing Mi'kmaq organizations uh, on your free time and getting to know us and to know our community members. You know, I, they said the, the best way you can learn from an elder is to help them with their chores or help them stack wood. And I think that's true. Um, that's how we learn. And I think that's how you start building those relationships. The impacts of this work have been wide reaching and challenge the status quo of scientific research and their outputs. Evelyn takes us through some of these positive impacts, starting with reimagining data management practices to respect Indigenous rights to data sovereignty. 
thinking about data and thinking about dissemination or how we share data outside of a traditional academic sphere. So placing equal value on communications that are geared towards a public audience or audio or visual communications as opposed to just a traditional academic paper. We do, under this project, subscribe to all the principles of OCAP, which is ownership, control, access, and possession. There's a course that's offered through the First Nations Information Governance Center. All researchers and collaborators with Abonamultul TIG were required to take the OCAP training. This is a tangible step that any project can do. Another critical piece is designing appropriate outputs that facilitate learning and engagement with the project and that are tailored to each individual group or audience. A shared priority of the partners from the beginning is to get accessible information about the project out into the communities as frequently as possible. I think in terms of different types of outputs, scientists and researchers are often uh, very focused on the traditional peer-reviewed publication. This narrow view of academia where it's like, well, if as long as we publish, something will happen with it and realizing that's often not the case. So thinking about how do we not only publish the papers, but also get the information out to all of these different groups that matter and that our, our project partners are part of in the forms that's going to be the most impactful for them. The other thing that uh, in terms of like, it's not really a product, but more of a, a, a tool or a process, I guess, is that we have um, these community liaisons for each study site. And so we have uh, Alana is our community liaison in the, the Bay of Fundy and uh, Skylar Jador is our community liaison in the Bredor Lake. And so those are people who are from a Mi'kmaq community in the area and have these deep relationships with the people in the area and are able to share information about the project and connect people to the project and to the project activities. I think that the traction and the reach that we've gotten on social media from people who live in the area around one of the study sites or are just interested in the project has been pretty incredible and is quite a positive impact that I think surprised us a little bit. You know, our posts are regularly reaching over a thousand people and it's it's pretty cool to see that kind of consistent, that consistent interest and like appetite for this kind of work and this kind of information. The social media links for Abonimal Tultig can be found in the show notes. In addition to public-facing outputs, the project's partners are also interested in getting information to decision-makers at DFO and Mi'kmaq bodies in the form that they need it to be in. So who's contributing to all of this work? An important impact has been the training, development, and contributions of students. Another positive takeaway has been the growth in our graduate students. So we have four master's students on the project. They all came into the project from a science background and then were asked to do a science-based master's degree, but also take on this, this additional challenge of really stepping outside of anything that they've learned in school and take on this two-eyed seeing approach. The growth and uh, initiative that those students have shown is really quite tremendous. 
I guess one one more kind of science-focused thing has been the incorporation of Mi'kmaq and local ecological cues to inform the research. So actually putting into practice this idea that when, when do we start eel tagging? Well, it's when the spring peepers start talking because that's when the eels are coming out of the mud. And so being able to have research that's actually more effective because it's being guided by people who have been living on the land and by the water their entire life and know exactly when the eels are going to be coming out. That's been really great. For even more highlights and successes from phase one, check out the video on the project's website. I think one of the really incredible things is that everyone wants to talk about what's next and everyone wants to talk about what are we going to do together to keep this going, keep the momentum going, because we're on to something here. So what's next for a Bonamultul TIG? Since the recording of this episode, the project has received a new grant for an additional five years of funding. It's very positive to see that granting councils are supporting projects like a Bonamultul TIG that enhance the ability to engage with non-academic institutions and other forms of knowledge other than Western science. I also had the chance to speak with Eveline and the ways that grants are administered. The conventional centralized mechanism of an academic at a university being responsible to deliver on the grant, as well as deciding on the budgets and how to distribute the funds, is not always the best way to facilitate and support community-based research. This episode highlighted a collaborative research project that has been modeled after Eduwaptamonk, or Two-Eyed Seeing. We heard from a number of people working with the project and how they've navigated their differences, created shared goals, and generated powerful knowledge that they're making accessible to all. The past two episodes highlighted conversations both from personal perspectives and through a collaborative research approach. This completes Volume 2 of Coastal Roots Radio, Coastal Connections, Stories from the Atlantic. We've set out to share the positive and inspirational work being done in communities throughout Atlantic Canada. We have heard about many diverse and collaborative projects working towards innovative solutions for the complex problems currently facing we currently face. We learned about ocean literacy, steps towards a circular economy in Newfoundland, solutions in Lunenburg, Nova Scotia, ghost gear retrieval in southwestern New Brunswick, and lots of really great research. Everyone has stories to share, and we were fortunate to learn from both Western and Indigenous knowledge systems and from a diversity of perspectives, including fishers, researchers, students, non-governmental organizations, and practitioners throughout the region. We'd like to once again thank all of our guests, especially our Mi'kmaq guests and collaborators, and the people behind the scenes who have made this volume a success. And finally, thank you for joining us. We hope you've enjoyed this journey as much as we have. Be well. Thanks for joining us. Coastal Connections is a production of Coastal Roots Radio through partnership with the University of Guelph and Memorial University of Newfoundland Grenfell Campus. To connect with the people you've heard from on this podcast, check out the show notes or connect with us online through Twitter at ResilienceRural or at Coastal underscore Roots. Coastal Roots Radio is funded by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada, the Environmental Policy Institute at Grenfell Campus, and the Rural Resilience Research Group led by Dr. Kelly Vaughden.